Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. Today, I'm back in the studio for a bonus episode with Dr. John Lyons, and we're going to talk about my two-part conversation with Juliana Barton, the former foster youth from Ohio. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Kristen. It's good to be back. And what an interview. (laughs) She's got a fascinating story. Well, I have to tell you, I can't get through that episode literally without weeping. I did a pre-interview with her. I did the interview with her. I've listened to it multiple times in the editing. And it so moves me. Her story so moves me. Something about her spirit so moves me. I just want to like, I want to give it to you because Mm -hmm. I get choked up even thinking about this young woman. So what about it chokes you up? To me, it's just astounding that any person, any human would, would be faced with so much adversity in such a short period of time. That's number one. And then the fact that she keeps going and keeps going with such fierceness and bravery and positivity, quite frankly, is just remarkable to me. Yes, she is. Uh, she's a remarkable person. Now, it's funny that you use the word fierce because she's very sweet and she's very soft-spoken. But you get this sense that she's actually quite fierce, and that uh, you know, I, I wish I could have met her when she was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and, and when she was taking care of her sister in, in the hospital. I mean, I think she would be quite an interesting and a compelling person. I'm sure the hospital wasn't always happy to see her. Yeah. Because right? I suspect she was very effective and very to the point. But that's good, which is great. I mean, that's exactly what she had to be. So anyway. So tell me, we we did an episode recently where we talked about the, the foster care system, the, the child welfare system. Is her story sadly typical to you? What, what stood out from the the childhood and adolescence of Juliana Barton? There's a couple of things about her story that are not particularly typical, and the the main thing that's not so typical is is the non-removal um, early on. I I think you know we talked a little bit about the racial bias in child welfare that there tend to be uh, kid, poor kids uh, 
particularly from communities of color, they get removed at a far higher rate mm-hmm. uh, than. Yeah. And you know, she's white. I'm assuming that her father's white. So I'm kind of wondering. I, I was wondering and listening to the story how much that factored into the fact that she wasn't removed mm-hmm. even after all those investigations. Is that she was sort of the uh, victim for the white privilege, right? Of you know, make people making assumptions that because this guy was a smooth talker and, yeah. and white that uh, they weren't as concerned. So I did wonder that. I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to tell at this point, but. Yeah, you know, it's. I, I do think there's oftentimes multiple investigations that don't lead to removal, but her story is kind of compelling in that sense. That I mean, her story is compelling in terms of how all the public systems failed so many times for she and her sister. Right. So it's it's a sad story from that perspective. It is. So. Did you find it also unusual that her dad was not charged with? child abuse? I didn't understand that, actually. Mm-hmm. So a domestic, I mean, she's right. The domestic violence sounds like she was his partner. So I don't know. By the way, uh, one thing I was struck, I just want to give you kudos because I think I've noticed something about your interview style, which is actually very good. Mm-hmm. And I just want to give you a shout out that you uh, you help people tell their story, but you don't intrude into it in a voyeuristic way, that you don't push for details that aren't relevant to the story. So I think that's really good. So you, and I think that's important. And I'm sure, you know, our, our listeners might sometimes say, well, I wish I knew this or that or the other, but some of that is voyeuristic, right? And so you need to know what you need to know. I mean, the fact that she was abused by her father is what you need to know. The details of that, you don't need to know. And so to prevent you from re-traumatizing her too much by telling your story. I think it's really good that you didn't press her for details, right? Because those aren't really relevant. The relevant story is that this is what happened. She was she had experiences of abuse from the hands of her father, and it led to these kind of circumstances. So, so kudos for you because I think that's a tough thing to do as an interviewer: not get drawn into the uh, compelling aspects of a story that might be not relevant. Thank you. I'll take those kudos. I I don't think that they are completely accidental. I think I've somehow trained myself. I think I trained myself as an acting teacher without any mental health um, training to know where to stop. And even though mm-hmm. in in my own mind, I might be curious about something, I have to be very careful between like, what is my own curiosity and what is not even just salacious, but also what's maybe going to push somebody over the edge unnecessarily. And also, I think in a lot of cases, on the other side of my kudos, just for our whole very tiny little, what we can call our team, right? I think we found such compelling stories, people with such compelling stories that I don't have to do that. I don't have to push buttons. Mm-hmm. These are just stories that I have mm-hmm. to hold space for the story to come out. Yep. But the stories don't need to be aggressively um, asked for in a way. That's also probably something different than what the actual experience is in working in child welfare, where you do have to extract stories sometimes, right? So we're lucky that uh, we only have people who want to tell their story. And so that's easier in some ways. Yeah. And with her too, I think the other thing that 
became very clear, and I kind of want to hear your take on this. It became very clear upon, I think, finishing the the recording, which was done in one in one session, one long session. Um, but listening back the first time, it was like, yeah, we can't edit this. We can't take any any of this out. So we've devoted two episodes to her because it's. It deserves two episodes, I think. It deserves, the whole story deserves to be told so the listener gets the the impact of all that she's been through. I got to tell you, by the end of it, I'm wanting to take her to the admissions office of a medical school and talk them into accepting her. Into, you know, I think she, uh. she's, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen her for transcripts and so forth, but I think that entire conversation is really important and how we kind of create these somewhat biased hurdles for people getting into um, elite education uh, that is just designed to actually maintain the status quo rather than identify necessarily the optimal candidates. So, yeah. I mean, she's absolutely right that you cannot have her story and not have your education disrupted, right? I mean, that's just not going to happen, right? And so... The fact that her education is disrupted then indicates to the admissions office that she can't be trusted to finish her MD and her residencies in a required time and so forth. And that just creates this self-fulfilling cycle, right, that uh, is unfortunate. Yeah, I was really happy to find some data, some some papers, frankly, written by current medical professionals that are really recent, really addressing that very thing that we're just looking in all, not in all the wrong places, but we're not looking in more of things that should be deemed the right places. Yeah, I think, uh, they, I know medical schools have over the last 20 years begun to shift. You know, when I, I actually applied to medical school mm. and got in and decided not, not to go. Uh, but back then, it was all about having good grades. In fact, you actually heard this from a, a Rand Paul talking to medical students and telling about, you know, he uses misinformation to have a competitive advantage relative to other medical students. That was the culture when I was uh, pre-med is mm. that people would ruin other people's lab experiments so that they could have a competitive advantage. I mean, the, the reason I didn't go to medical school is the culture of the people who were competitive was so toxic mm. that I just didn't want to have anything to do with that. So I think that's changed. You know, they've active to try to bring in people from humanities, not just bench science. And they've tried to have people who have life experiences outside of just getting good grades and high test scores. And I think that's helped some, but I think there's still work to be done. Mm. I want to go back into her story a little bit, especially as it pertains to the whole issue of being an older foster youth. and. She so sweetly, so sweetly says something like, I would have taken anything at that point when she finally gets removed from her home and, and lands mm -hmm. in a, in a, in a foster care situation and un, what does she call it? An un, it's not a certified foster home. No, um, unlicensed. Unlicensed foster home. I guess I'm just being wishful here. Like what, what would have been a good situation for her? What, why did Ohio decide to let her be emancipated at 18, yeah. you know? So what was puzzling to me, and maybe this is just the timing of it relative to now, 
is there are these these approaches they're called family finding uh, the kinds of approaches where you really the when you come into child welfare you actually try to do due diligence to find any possible family members and it sounded like that might have been possible in her situation but they just didn't do mm. it i mean they sort of took the easiest possible option um and just as an aside there's a lot of kids who couch surf and they're actually living with their friends families and it's not it's not even foster care right it's not even unlicensed foster yeah. care they just happen to be living with their friends families that happens a lot in adolescence because of the instability of adolescence and how you know some parents can't help themselves but take things personally and which is the biggest single mistake with an adolescent because it's not about you it's about the adolescent trying to uh, figure out their own autonomy and identity so it's really tough to live with adolescents, typically. Um, not all adolescents. Some adolescents are just sweet. So, But some adolescents are really difficult to live with. Um, and so that creates some challenges. But a lot of, so a lot of, lot of teenagers go and live with friends for a while and that kind of stuff. That happens a lot. It's called couch surfing. So it's a form of homelessness, actually. So, so anyway, she, uh, she probably, because this person knew her through her friend, that ended up doable. And so... The doable um, overrides the ideal. Mm-hmm. But I think the ideal is a key word with, with Juliana. I think uh, her power is her idealization. I mean, she, I mean, she's walking around outside her house singing about her perfect family, right? I mean, she does idealize things in a very powerful way, which I think is her superpower. Um, I think that may be part of what sustains her it also is what devastates her, of course. You know, I, I was listening to a uh, some discussion of some research on wait waiting and the, the psychology of waiting, mm. uh, which seems to have nothing to do with this, but it's interesting because what the research team found, so they used uh, waiting for results of a biopsy from cancer. Okay. And what they found is that if you're optimistic the waiting period, you're much, your well-being is way better during the waiting period. Mm. But if you get bad news, you're devastated. And if you're pessimistic, the waiting period is brutal for you. But if you get bad news, you're kind of expecting it. And if you get good news, you're ecstatic, right? So what they suggested that the optimal psychological strategy would be to be optimistic for the first part of the wait period and then right before you get the results become increasingly pessimistic anticipating the worst possible result and that would protect you from the actual results so i think you know julianne is the kind of person that stays optimistic and idealistic and of course the world does not always behave that way and so that is devastating right because when but at the same time it's her superpower. It gets, it gets her back on her feet and moving forward and expecting the best. So wow. it's an interesting story. I mean, but I think her ideal is, her ability to create a vision of an ideal circumstance is powerful. Yeah, I think I love that you remember the story about her singing and just um, sort of making actual declarations via language, via song about... Mm-hmm. what she would have, what she will have, what she's manifesting. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, it is, I keep using the word remarkable because I think so many people in far fewer 
with with far greater advantages, I should say, with far fewer obstacles, are much less likely to get up when they get knocked down. Yeah. Do you think part of it, I mean, is part of it just that she had to? Like, is, is, is it like, is it survival? Like, how much of this is just hard hardwired survival instinct? Like, I, I just, I have to get up and keep going, otherwise I, I'll die. And I'd rather not die. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's a part of it. I suspect also she's a pretty smart cookie, mm. right? So, there's a. Um, there was a study of uh, Vietnam veterans uh, and post-traumatic stress, mm. and they have a study. They have a. They had a finding that I found out I get about from one of the members of the research team that never got published because they thought it was too loaded. Mm. Um, uh, finding, but they found that intelligence was related to not being getting severe PTSD in the face of trauma. Um, and I think she's pretty smart, and I think that might help her a lot so that she's able to think things through. She's able to maintain her kind of vision, and she's she's just that actually is a is a powerful aid to her. That being said, I mean she's the classic definition of resilient, right? So which is keeping getting knocked down and keep getting back up and you know a combination between her being a good problem solver smart and maintaining her ideal view of the world i think that probably is a major part of her success it's pretty amazing actually let's be i'm just i'm curious not to be hard hitting, but what do you think the likelihood is that she can get into medical school? She's now 34 years old, maybe even 35 at this point. I have not seen her transcript, mm. so I don't know. Um, I'm thinking, I think I'm going to reach out to her and see if I can help um, because I, I feel compelled to do what I can. So I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd have to look at that to know. I think it's, I think anything is possible. You know, I, I probably helped somewhere between 750 and 1,000 people get into some kind of advanced uh, degree program. Wow. And I, everybody's been successful eventually. So you just have to find the right strategy, right? So I, I think it's doable. I think it's not necessarily easy. Uh, and it's not, obviously not going to happen on the first time. So, But I think probably... I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to look at her transcript to see if it's even possible. So, I mean, there's because there's a cutoff you know, on grades and so forth where you're not. They're not even a review of your application. So, but then if that's the case, she could go back to school and take classes and increase her grade point average and that kind of stuff, right? So, then almost anything is possible. So, I would say yes, it is possible. Uh, how much work she has to do to make it happen, I don't. Mm. I really couldn't tell you without a, a deeper dive into her into her actual academic history it impressed me though when i asked her i think i asked her she just sort of offered i was like well why not social work why not mm -hmm. nursing you know and she's really thought that through and she's thought about that deeply yeah. and that's another place where i feel like she's really fierce you know she says there's no one out there she's fierce there's no one out there representing really <laughs> my population mm -hmm. my experience i understand mm -hmm. this population from from firsthand experience um, and I racked my brain too. I was like, yeah, I don't, not that I've had, not that I, you, not that you interview your doctor in those ways. Are you a foster youth? Sure. But I did, I couldn't <laughs> yeah. find any, 
stories out there that that echoed it. She did. She had mentioned Grey's Anatomy, and I thought, yeah, that's it. There, they had you know featured a fictitious, uh, you know, foster care youth who becomes a, a medical doctor on that show. All right, so let's just put a call out there. If anybody's listening who's a medical doctor with a foster care background, please contact us because we'd love to hear your story, how you did it. Please, yeah. The other thing I was really struck by with um, Juliana is the the reality that we all have to make our own mistakes. Mm. That, you know, I, I often say, you know, in my own work that, um, you know, I'm very experienced, right? I'm, I'm probably one of the top people in my field little bitty field, oh. right, of outcomes management, right? So, because I've been doing it for 40 yeah. years and there's probably no one alive that's got more actual experience than than I do um, that's still working. But it, what I've discovered is it doesn't mean anything. My experience actually doesn't mean anything. The only thing that means something is your experience. And so for somebody with experience, all that you can do is help other people understand their experience so that they can advance it. But it, when it comes down to it, we all have to have our own experiences and we all have to learn through those experiences. And I think she, her story kind of tells that in a, in a compelling way. And it's her learning from her mistakes, you know, and learning from the things that, bad things that happened despite her not making mistakes um, is a compelling part of a message. I think to all of us that, you know, I, I'm fond of saying to my students, the only difference between people who succeed and people who fail is people who succeed fail more. And that's the reality of living is that you just have to keep plugging away, mm. getting it right. And that also her fierceness helps with that, I think, that uh, that she will keep doing it until she gets it right. Yeah. And, and as we're sort of transitioning into getting back to the spirit of the podcast in general, I'm thinking of how she responded to the rapid fire questions, um, often mm-hmm. her response was, I wouldn't change anything. I don't want right. to change anything. You know, I loved that. It was, you know, it was honest. Correct if I'm, correct if I'm wrong. Hasn't that been the answer for everyone so far? Um, I think it has, hasn't it? I, don't I know it was for, um, for our entrepreneur friend. I, that's right. Rachel Fowler might have said she wouldn't change a thing. Mm-hmm. I think she was a little cheekier when I, you know, she had, she maybe had some mm-hmm. wrinkles that she wanted to get rid of. Maybe some version of that. We should, we should take the temperature mm-hmm. uh, on that. Some version of, mm-hmm. I wouldn't change a thing. I was thinking about that. And what, where I went in my head was that, you know, we've been talking to people who have gotten to places where they love who they are. Mm-hmm. They like themselves, mm, right? Yeah. And I think if you like yourself and you understand how life works, you embrace everything that's happened to you as the definition of who you are. And so if you like who you are, then you can't reject any part of your experience because that's how you define yourself as who you are. So yeah. I think it all sort of makes kind of sense. Yeah. I'm thinking Jordan answered this, that question. And I think uh, Dr. Davis, too, I think... I think everybody answered that question so far in that same way as that they they wouldn't change anything, which struck me. It, it struck me in a number of situations because you know they've been through all of our all of our guests have been through quite a bit in their lives. Yeah, hmm. quite a quite a bit. We didn't tread lightly hmm. into this season. We really dove right in with people who <laughs> right. have had right. massive amounts of really big change. 
I'm just more than anything wanting to keep following her story. And I think no matter what happens with medical school, no matter what happens with her, I expect, and I don't mean that in a, in a, you know, mom kind of expectation way, but I, I expect big things from her. I expect her to be a leader. She already is a leader. You know, she already is a leader as an advocate. And I think really going to take the hands of older foster youth, they're, they are, they are not going to suffer from having no one to look up to because she's out in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that's a part of one of her answers in the rapid fire as well, you know, that that, that role of her in helping get the youth ombudsman uh, legislation in place and so forth is uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Really, especially for someone who didn't even feel like they knew advocacy was a possibility, you know, that that, mm -hmm. that kind of um, work was out there in the world. And in such a short time, she went from just discovering that she could use her voice to really, really using it. I, I had one, I had a thought just cross my mind and go away and I'm waiting for it to come back. While you're thinking, I'll also make a comment that okay. her sister's story highlights the problem of people with mental health challenges in the medical system. I mean, mental health diagnoses are like the default low-hanging fruit. If you don't understand something, well, it must be mental health, right? And so you kind of see that going on with her sister. She had an unusual medical condition. She just, just apparently got written off to her mental health challenges, which is the tragedy. It's like you almost don't want to tell a non-psychiatric physician that you have a mental health problem because it becomes the easy diagnostic out. Uh, if it's if yeah. you have a more expensive or more difficult kind of diagnostic dilemma, it's that's really sad, actually. Um, but that's not the first time I've heard that kind of problem. But she her story highlights that to significant damage to her sister that probably could have been completely prevented. Yes. Actually, and Juliana actually her sister left earlier, but Juliana seems to have survived a little bit better, which I was trying to wrap my head around how and why, but I guess we don't really know what where her sister ran to and what happened during that period of time, and uh, we don't really know whether the, so what where I went in my head is, did the formal resolution of her issues with her father help Juliana move on, uh, or is there something else, or is there just, you know, differences between she and her sister in terms of what happened to them and how each of them reacts to the things that happen and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we don't know the whole story there, but it's interesting because uh, Juliana, in the scheme of things, she may not always have felt this way. She's actually doing well despite the challenges that she faced. So, And her commitment to her sister is so impressive. I mean, just the, the work of angels. So. I, I remember what I was going to say was that she has been, from the moment you and I reached out to her, her spirit, her way of responding is with is with such sincere gratitude. And like, you know, every after the pre-interview, after the interview, when I checked in on her to see if she had updates, it was always with mm -hmm. the most sincere, authentic gratitude. And I think more than us dissecting what we hear is our great opportunity here is just the world getting to hear her story and hoping, yes. I hope the dominoes will fall just from that. Yeah, because we should all be grateful for people like her 
as opposed to her being just grateful for us, right? Because, I mean, she's impressive. We need more Juliana Bartons in the world. So. Yeah, we do. She, re- You know, there's all this, I don't want to call it nonsense, but there's all this lip service around the idea of grit in on mm-hmm. college campuses. And yes, um, it's like, come on. <laughs> That's grit. Right. That's that grit. Is grit. Right. And no one really taught her that. She gritted no. herself through life. And you wonder if it's teachable. Right? You do. I, I don't know. I mean, this is the part of me that, you know, life is a hard teacher, right? So it's the living the living that gets you there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can take you know, grit 101 and come out of it, you know, in college <laughs> with, with more grit. I suspect not. I don't think that's exactly how it works. So. I, I agree. I don't think, I think it's great, sure, introduce the, the concept, but is it teachable? Mm. Is it teachable, you know, we're, tr- I think in some ways too, we're trying to teach it to the privileged who don't really haven't maybe had a need for grit. And she's just had a, a need for grit from the moment she came into the world. Yeah. Well, her upbringing is more like an old school, you know, before, back, you know, when we were talking about the origins of child welfare and yes. orphanages and that kind of stuff. Hers is more like that story. I mean, not really being appreciated as a child, um, but anyway. So yeah. No, of course, I mean, you, you can't help but when she's telling the story about singing to also think of... You know, like little orphan Annie. You can't you can't help oh, right. of Absolutely. think about just this. <laughs> also, yeah. the musicalization of you know her hopes yes. and dreams and tomorrow, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe that's just <laughs> me as a silly theater person, but that's what actually was the, my favorite part of the story. Actually, that that story of hers of her singing in her outside was my favorite part of the story. It just spoke to who she is. Yeah, and I think it was that rare glimpse that she gave us, not that she didn't have other glimpses or, or other experiences like that, but it was that rare glimpse of levity and just ease and what childhood mm-hmm. maybe should be for, for most mm-hmm. of us that like, oh, right, she, she did have that even if she kind of, you know, she carved it out for herself in a way, but it was good to know and good to hear that she, she had some of those experiences too. Yeah, the fact that she could sing. You know, yeah. You know, that's, that's a great thing. Yeah. She also struck me. So one of the things as I was listening, you know, that saying, don't fake it until you make it kind of thing. I, it, I wondered how many times she found herself in that kind of position where she had, because it sounded like she frequently found herself in positions that she had zero preparation for. Yes. And yet she found a way to, as I would call it, fake it until she made yeah. it. Yeah. Until she made it. So. And I think that's a, a real gift as well, you know, some confidence in terms of being, you know, trying. So just being who you are and doing the best you can and recognizing that you don't know so that you can learn how. Because I suspect she educates herself routinely on these kind of things. So I think you're right. At least that's the sense I got. I think you're so. right. Yeah. Well, do you have any final thoughts on that very special young woman? Well, I hope she gets into medical school. That's uh, absolutely, uh, you know. Beyond that, I think her story is is compelling. It's it speaks to all of us of what we can do if we kind of maintain a positive orientation, uh, take feedback, learn from our experiences, and keep 
moving forward with a vision for who we want to be. So I think she's uh, just such a wonderful model of, of good despite bad. You know, there's bad things in the world, but good can come out of it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think anybody who would listen to this would walk away moved somehow, something. To, we're talking about change, but things moved around in me. Her episode changed me in a lot of ways. It made me mm-hmm. it made me really think about my own tendency towards negativity and towards catastrophizing and towards mm-hmm. worrying when there's really nothing to worry about and all, you know, all of that stuff. And it really yeah. has made a difference in my day-to-day life to just yep. think about her and, and think, not like what would Juliana yeah, yeah, do, but, you know, really, right, come yeah. on, put this yeah. in perspective. Well, you have no, I mean, given her story, you have no right to complain. That's right. <laughs> so, right? That I mean, so, is yeah. right. That's exactly, mm-hmm. exactly what I walked away thinking was, whoa, I better get my mm-hmm. complaints in line here because some of them right. are worthless. They have mm-hmm. no right to be <laughs> spoken aloud. There's, you know, you know, I have this thing for song lyrics. Mm-hmm. So the song lyric that comes to mind and looking at is this, the end of the, there's one song by the group called Fun uh-huh. uh, that, you know, I look into my nephew's eyes and it's, you know, amazing what you can see, something so wonderful coming from such horrible lies, right? So and I think that's Juliana, right? I mean, you see something beautiful and wonderful coming from a really horrific background, right? So, and that's just inspiring. That's just like, wow. Yeah. So yeah. the flower grew in a dung heap, you know? So just an amazing kind of beautiful situation. Yeah. Thank you for, for just thanks for bringing her to, to my attention and giving me the chance to uh, spend time with her. Yeah. She's a, she's a treasure. Yeah. You're a treasure too. We, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So as you are as well. We're, that's we're, the, we're all treasures in just different ways. So um, thank you for for talking to me today. And we have a few more to get through, and we'll um, we right. have a very good season. Thank you for that. I'm looking forward to them. It's, it's it continues to see this how traumatic experience kind of define the. Um, speed bumps in people's lives or the the obstacles that they move around and how different people move around them in different ways and but i think that's sort of the compelling thing is there's many different ways of thinking about how to get around the the stuff that makes life difficult yeah because we have not yet once heard somebody who had it easy and i suspect we won't hear anybody that everybody's got stuff they have to deal with everybody's got stuff they have to figure out how to work through and around so it's just interesting to see how different people do it differently always good to talk to you john great talking to you be well and we'll talk soon okay Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions. 
and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org and by the Center for Innovation in Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at IPH.UKY.edu.